Michael Bungay Stanier is the founder and CEO of Box of Crowns. Box of Crowns helps people and organizations raise their leadership game by teaching them 10-minute coaching. Hey, it's Dustin. Welcome to this edition of The Burleson Box. Michael's the author of several books, including The Coaching Habit and Do More Great Work. He's written or been featured in numerous publications, including Business Insider, Fast Company, Forbes, The Globe and Mail, and The Huffington Post. Michael grew up in Australia, became a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, and then fell in love and moved to Toronto. He's one of the few authors I've read that's brutally honest about his life. He was banned from his high school graduation and sued by one of his law school professors. In other words, he's exactly the type of person we love at Burleson Seminars. In this episode, Michael and I will review what you can do now to become a better leader, how we've seen coaching improve the bottom line, employee engagement, and strengthen your organization. I'm excited to share this brilliant book and Michael's interview. Let's get started on this episode of The Burleson Box. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. Hey, Michael, thanks so much for being here today. Hey, listen, you grew up in Australia. You became a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, and then you fell in love and moved to Toronto. Yeah. Uh, you're one of the few authors I've read that is brutally honest about your life. <laughs> uh, you were banned from your high school graduation for the, quote, balloon incident and actually sued by one of your law school professors for defamation. In other words, you're exactly the type of person we love <laughs> at Burleson's. <laughs> seminars. Uh, so I'm curious, how'd you get started with coaching and working with companies all over the world, like USAA and ATD and the, even the United Nations? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you. And I'm happy to be here. Look, you know, I'd always been one of those guys who was kind of interested in listening, you know, when growing up as a teenager in Australia and, you know, you go through all that kind of teenage angst stuff. And I would just find myself at I don't know, two o'clock in the morning, sitting in a car with a friend, them talking about their miserable life, me listening to it and going, well, I'm glad I can listen to it. And I know I'm making kind of encouraging, supporting noises, but is there any anything else I could be doing here? And it was actually that that prompted me to do my first training in this space, which was actually crisis counseling. So joining a kind of teenage suicide hotline sort of thing. 
And that was the doorway that took me into the world of coaching. So, you know, when I realized that, um, asking good questions, listening to the answers, helping people shape a better life um, was something that I could do and I was I was good at, then it just became a path that, you know, it's like one of those things that you kind of double down on the stuff that works and you back away from the stuff that doesn't. And this happened to be some of the stuff that worked for me. Yeah, I, lo- I love your book. Everyone who's a quarterly uh, member of the Burleson Box is getting uh, Michael's book called The Coaching Habit. Say less, ask more, and change the way you lead forever. How have you gotten really good at asking or helping people ask good questions? Well, part of it's just practice. And part of it is understanding the resistance that most of us have to being curious. Um, you know, the challenge with the word coach and coaching in general is for lots of us, it actually comes with a whole bunch of baggage, <laughs> you know, a whole bunch of baggage around, okay, I'm, I'm allergic to life coaches because they're everything's pastel colored and incense smelling and have to hug me all the time or I'm allergic to the executive coach experience because it's all too much or I was brutalized by a sports coach at some stage in my life who shouted at me. So a lot of us come with a lot of baggage around what does this coaching stuff mean? And for us, we've defined it in a really simple behavioral way. It's like simply this, can you stay curious a little bit longer and can you rush to action and advice given just a little bit more slowly? Because what we've discovered is that most people are advice giving maniacs. You know, we're kind of wired to leap in and start offering up ideas, suggestions, opinions, advice, commands. And there's something powerful about just slowing that down. Not to say never give advice, because obviously there's a place for advice, but could you just slow down the rush for that? And so the step number one is is not just kind of going, oh, I think I should be a coach. It's just going, how would it help me and how would it help them if I just slow down what I want to tell them to do and just ask them a question instead and let me see what happens then? Yeah, we're we're, we're- – really hardwired as most of the people listening to this are orthodontists, dentists, plastic surgeons, dermatologists. Right. And they, we, we let a few attorneys in the group. There's a couple <laughs> in the group as right. well. They're, uh, you know, they're hardwired to just jump in and want to fix problems when they see a colleague or an employee or someone, or maybe even a client or customer or patient who has a problem. We just want to jump in and fix it. Well, you know, these, are, these are all professions where there's been many years of work to gain the expertise that you have. And, you know, there's there's great research that says on average the typical GP uh, interrupts their patient after less than a minute's talking, about 48 seconds I think the answer was. And I think it's true for lots of these professions. And, hey, I have a cleft lip and palate, so I've spent time staring up at my orthodontist and having conversations about them. And, again, it's, it's not to diminish that expertise. That's extremely powerful. But there's also great research that says this process of being more curious, asking questions, can take you further down the path more easily much of the time. Yeah, I totally agree. What What's some practical advice you can give? You know, I mean, we don't have – all the time necessary uh, in this recording to go into the the depth that you do in your coaching sessions and in your books. But that's why we're doing this program so that we can break down the book and talk about some practical. What are some things leaders can do to really slow that down? Well, I think the, um, the book says, look, seven good questions carry you a long way down the path to being more coach-like. And there are only eight chapters in the book. The first chapter is actually not about the questions. It's actually about building habits because 
what we're asking for here is actually a shift in behavior. And that's difficult because we've all had years of practicing the behavior that's got us from here to, to where we are now. So until you start understanding the science and the art of changing the way that you act, it's really hard to do things differently. And habits are the building blocks of behavior change. So the starting point for me would be to say, look, can you figure out or can you learn how to more mindfully build different habits? And what I would suggest is to say, look, don't try and just make a general declaration. Oh, I love this conversation with Michael. Yeah, I'm going to try and be more coach-like. That's not going to work. It's to actually pick a question, just any question, and say, let me practice that question and get good at it and let me see how it works and see if I can build that into a habit. So, you know, the the first question in the book is called the kickstart question. It's a powerful way of starting conversations with your team or with your customers or your clients or your uh, patients. And the question is, so what's on your mind? And it is both an open question and a focusing question. It says, tell me what's important. Tell me what matters to you. And that might be uh, a, a question to start practicing with. Or maybe question number two, which is we call the best coaching question in the world, which is a bold claim, I know. But it's a simple one. And that question is, and what else? And the insight behind the and what else question is to say, look, the first answer somebody gives you is never their only answer and rarely their best answer. So when you're in conversation with your team, your patients, your, your customers, your vendors, whoever, after you've asked a question, maybe just say, look, here's my habit. I'm never going to take that first answer for granted. I'm always going to say, great, and what else? And just start slowly, start with one question, but start building that coaching habit that way. Yeah, it's it's this book has been so helpful for me, both with patients and employees, but also our coaching clients. And it really provides a, a, a script. And I think so many people get turned off by a script because they think it's going to make them sound like a robot. Yeah. But, you know, I've always argued if you have built these into your in your memory, into your habit, as you say, um, it really gives you more time and more freedom to really listen to what the person says. Like, I know. Now, having read your book, I, no one's going to leave a conversation without me really helping them define what the challenge is. You know, Beautiful. tell me how big is the opportunity? What's the challenge? Where are we stuck? You know, what's on your mind? These things then, as a script, give me the chance to really listen, which I think is really powerful. It's very, very cool. Well, I love how you're pointing to that. And and what I'd say to kind of doubly reassure people who are listening in is it's not a mindless script where you have to follow it regardless of what's being said to you. But it is saying you actually need to say far less and have far far less kind of content at your fingertips if you trust the questions and, and try them out in the same way that all of the people listening have systems and structures and processes in their business to drive efficiencies. And that doesn't mean that you become a slave to your own processes, but you do realize the power of having a process that you can lean into, you can trust, you can adjust as need be, but it actually gives you a foundation for getting from A to B. Yeah. I, you know, before learning this and reading your book, you know, we, we'd all just kind of list our frustrations in team meetings and, you know, we probably could have done the entire meeting as a memo with, with everybody's writing <laughs> sure. down all the problems they wanted to fix. And no one really got deeper than that. And uh, we just had a meeting actually this past weekend 
And these questions have been so, so helpful. And oh, thank you. So how, how have you seen that? Because, you know, I love that you said, you know, that this isn't, you know, coaching like where we all sing Kumbaya and, and right. flowers and hugs, right? <laughs> how do you see this actually improve the bottom line, you know, of companies you work with? Well, there are, there are three challenges that people who run companies think about. One is about impact, which you can measure through profit or you can measure through top-line growth or bottom-line growth, or, or if you're not a for-profit organization, maybe kind of serving your, your vision. The second thing you worry about is engagement, which is like, do I have good people and am I keeping the good people so that they can do the work that matters? And the third thing is change. How do we manage change so that we grow and that we evolve and that we potentially differentiate ourselves from our competitors so that we remain a resilient culture and a resilient organization? And honestly, I would argue, and clearly I'm biased, but I would argue that being more coach-like can help you with all three of those. You know, if you think that the outcome of coaching can be, A, you have greater focus so you know what the real challenge is, so you're spending time and effort and energy solving the real problems, not the first problems that show up. If you think that coaching is a way of growing people's autonomy and their confidence and their competence and their creativity, then you have smarter, more adult, more more autonomous team members, so they're more engaged and they require less work from you. And in doing that, you're also building a team that's more resilient because you're focused on the right things and you have people who are showing up at their best. So if if impact matters to you or engagement matters to you or becoming more resilient through change matters to you, then typically being more coach-like is a useful and underutilized leadership skill. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I see impact every area of our business. And we talk a lot with our team that you know employees really don't show up to work and, and underperform intentionally and then quit their jobs. They usually quit their bosses. They quit their oh, leaders. Yeah athletes quit their coaches, you know, they don't quit the sport. You know, what are some things, you know, for the for the doctor or small business owner listening to this, you know, what are some practical things you could give them some advice if they say, ah, you know, I'm, I'm really not that good of a coach? Well, I'd say that um, the first is to realize that, uh, you know, like anything, some of us have a wiring that allows us to be better or worse at it, but almost all of us can learn how to be pretty good at it. Um, honestly, coaching is a learned behavior. You're not kind of blessed with some sort of magic fairy dust at birth and, oh, you're going to become a coach. It's like you are learning a behavior, which is can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? And I don't think there's anybody listening here who goes, well, that's a completely unreasonable, out-of-reach shift of behavior for me, particularly when you go – a few good questions and an understanding of how to build a habit can actually set you up for that. So, so the behavior change is, is it's difficult, but it's doable by everybody. The bigger question, perhaps a more provocative question is, well, how much are you up for being a more powerful leader, being more engaging? And here's the rub of it. And this can be a real challenge, particularly, I think, for people Maybe I'm just projecting here, but maybe for people who have that kind of medical background, I've seen this be a little bit more of a struggle because here's the the subtle shift. Sure, we've all got the habits of giving advice and we're looking to overcome those. But one of the deeper points of resistance about becoming more coach-like 
is it's actually a way that you are giving up control and you are giving up power to the person you're talking to. Because here's the thing, when you are giving advice, you are the person with the high status. You are the smart person in the room. You are in control of this conversation. You are the one who is adding value. You are the one who is being helpful. And that makes you feel pretty good. Even if, and I'll be provocative again, your advice actually is nearly never as good as you actually think it is. And at least half the time, you're probably solving the wrong problem because you've made the mistake of thinking the first challenge that shows up is the real challenge. And honestly, it almost never is. However, you feel pretty good. When you ask a question as an alternative, there's that moment of ambiguity and perhaps doubt. You know, was that a good question? Did they get it? Did it land? What are they going to say? What's the answer going to be? What happens if they come back with some crazy answer that makes no actual sense? How do I, how, when's this conversation going to end? I'm a busy person. So you're actually stepping into a place of a little more uncertainty, a little more ambiguity, a little less control. Now, this is what it means to empower. Because here's the, I mean, everybody kind of nods their head when they hear empowerment. They're like, oh, yeah, of course I'm for empowering my people. But what you have to realize is empowerment means actually giving up some of your power, some of your control, and letting others have it, inviting them to step in and to take that. And that's a, that's a bigger call. That's a bigger challenge. And I think for the people who are thinking to themselves, well, it sounds good, but I think one of the questions that you get to wrestle with is, so are you willing to step into that place of what they would call servant leadership? place of more discomfort for you, but working in service to the people you lead for their sake and ultimately for your sake as well. Yeah. I know another great best-selling author, just like you, Brene Brown says, you know, how are you going to get comfortable having uncomfortable conversations? And, right. you know, as leaders in the organization, we, we like to think that we have good ideas and that we started our business for a reason that the market yeah. values it. And then it's very hard sometimes to relinquish that power and that control. But oh, and, and believe me, I empathize. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I started my own business. I have my own team. <laughs> I face these same struggles myself where I'm like, man, this is so much easier to write about in a book than to actually live and go through yourself. But this is what I think it means to be an exemplary leader. It's a great example. I hope everyone goes back and listens to that because it's so easy for people to say, I, I love business cliches like we, we've got to get everyone on the same page. Right? Well, right. what does that mean? And when people say, right. yeah, well, let's empower the team. Well, yeah. what does that mean? Well, Michael just told you, you've got to go back and actually relinquish some power. Even if you think it might fail, you've got to give your team the freedom and the latitude to make mistakes and to learn from them. And that's very, very hard as leaders. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, you know, I know not, no one listening to this is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, right? But I'm curious your reading habits um, and maybe shape that around the mindset of the listener. Yeah. As far as staying curious, what, what's your input? Like how many different uh, things are you exposing yourself to in, in reading? You know, I try and read broadly and I have an advantage that I love to read Um I'm married to a woman who was trained as a librarian, so she's forever throwing books at me. It means that I read quite broadly. I read fiction. I read science fiction. I run, read young adult fiction. I read business books. I read science books. Um, I really try and, and create a diverse input. And I listen to it. You know, I try and get a diverse range of content coming at me. Now, here's the part of what I do. I'm extremely intolerant of the stuff that I think is not interesting. 
So part of being a, you know, let's call myself a lower B-list celebrity in the world of business books is that I get sent a bunch of business books. Um, you know, weekly I'll probably have two or three arrive for people to, for me to look over and maybe say something about. And honestly, most of them are thoroughly underwhelming. And I pick them up. I want to go, I want to re- like this book and I'll start reading it. And if it hasn't grabbed me, if it doesn't feel like it's going to be useful, I abandon it. I feel no compunction to finish a book. But when I can find a book that I love that really speaks true to me. And I'm like, let me be a champion for this. Let me send it out. Let me talk about it. Let me give it as gifts to people. So I'd encourage people to, to read broadly if they can but be intolerant of the stuff that's not adding value because one of the things that we face at the moment is that people have decided that content is a valuable way of growing your profile and growing your brand. And it means that we are awash with content. I mean, there's just, it is relentless and endless, and most of it is terrible or just recycled or mediocre. I mean, if I see somebody else tell me about Southwest Airlines again, I'm going to bang my head against the wall. <laughs> so, yeah, be fussy, be picky, get best recommendations from people, go to people who you trust and see what they curated as their kind of suggested reading list. Um I'll give you a suggestion right away. There's a guy called Ryan Holiday who's written a number of great books, but he has a, a newsletter that comes out once a month, and it is a, uh, a a reading list. And it's like, here are five or six books that I read over the month that I would recommend or that I, I'm writing a review on. That's a good uh, e- uh, email to sign up to, Ryan Holiday. And then there's a podcast by a guy called Neil Pazrika, P-A-S-R-I-C-H-A, called Three Books, which is a podcast of people talking about the three books that have changed their lives. And that's also a great way to discover new resources. Those are great. Yeah, Ryan Holiday has been a, a guest on this program as well. So you're, you're in good company. And uh, I love I love those tips. There's so, so many friends of mine will look at my library, and I do the same thing. And they'll laugh because I'll have a book and I'll keep the dust jacket, but I've only torn like maybe 20 good pages of that oh, book, have the book, and yeah. I throw the book away. <laughs> that's, that's a smart idea. I mean, what I do is uh, like I've just given a book away around um, team building. And it was kind of a recycle of some of the same ideas. There are four types of people and here's how they get on and here's how they don't get on. Um, it's put out by Deloitte, so be, you know, a consulting firm. And for me, I took photos of the four charts in the book that I thought were interesting and uploaded them to my Evernote, and that's my summary of that book. And then the book is given away to uh, given away to somebody else on my team who I thought might find it interesting. Yeah, I want to highlight your advice because I, I meet so many business owners who say, "Oh, I don't read fiction. Oh, I would never read. So I only read business books." And I think, man, you're missing out on so much. Uh, you know, I read a ton of fiction because really there's no such thing as nonfiction. <laughs> that, that author is pouring their heart and their life into that work. Exactly. And there's a lot to learn. In fact, there's great business lessons in a lot of fiction books. Well, there um, is. And, and, and not least that it allows you to understand that your point of view is not the universal point of view. So it is a great way of finding empathy. Just that alone, which is like there are different hearts that beat in different ways, minds that think in different ways, perspectives that are different from yours. And if your profession is one where 
creating a sense of connection and empathy matters, fiction can be a powerful doorway into that. Yeah, I was reading through some quotes from Charlie Munger. I don't know if I saw Warren Buffett flash across the TV or something, but I've got a lot of their uh, company's annual meeting notes and things. And Munger said something really curious that I think I'd heard before, but smacked me in the head like a two by four to the forehead. He said, you know, if you're not taking one of your best loved ideas and killing it each year, you've probably wasted that year. And there's so many books where, you know, you read the bio, you kind of read the summary and you go, eh, that's probably not for me. But halfway into the book, you're going, wow, there's a really different way of thinking of things that yeah. uh, I would have never approached. And it helps you maybe kill an idea or, or, a, or a bias you've had for a long time. So, Well, it's yeah. even more so, I think, at the moment where it's just so easy to create your own echo chamber. You know, you hang out on, let's say, Facebook and you basically hang out with people who all agree with you. So uh, outraged at the same things you're outraged are and champions of the same things you're champions at. Um, And we just build this world around us that tends to reinforce what we already believe rather than provoke us differently. So I do think it's it's an invitation to show up in the world. I mean, I'm in Canada, so we're a slightly less divided country than the U.S. is at the moment. But the U.S. is like there are just – a country with two very, very different perspectives about what's going on in the world. And you tend to, if you know, you'll be on one of those sides and you tend to think that you're right and the other side are nuts. And uh, it's, there's a, the, the start of a bridge there is a degree of going, well, what's the empathy there? What, how do I even begin to understand their different perspective? Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or Go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. And now back to the program. Yeah, I see it with with uh, primarily orthodontists who are the majority of our membership who, you know, most of what they're looking at, I always joke and say, if, if the last book you read had teeth in it, you're right. probably reading the wrong books. Uh, but we do, we all get in a circle and we say, well, what are you doing for how you hire, how you motivate, how you manage your people? How do you market? You know, what days are you open? What hours? What clinical things are you doing? And the problem with that, as you pointed out, is, you know, some of my best advice, like, for example, your book uh, that we're reviewing here today with Michael Bungay Stanier is The Coaching Habit. Say yeah. less, ask more, and change the way you lead forever, which I'm happy to say doesn't have any pages torn out of it the entire book. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm happy about that. Thank that, you. Yeah, that is w- way more impactful than getting on a Facebook message group and asking an orthodontist you know, what I should do with this employee who needs uh, some motivation or management, you know, tell, talk about, you know, I know you coach and work with a lot of great companies. Talk about some of those struggles you see when, when it comes to coaching and and helping leaders empower their teams. 
Well, I think some of it we've covered. You know, some of it is just about the leader going, "Am I am I willing to step up to this?" Um, some of it is a uh, the hard work required to shift old habits so that you go, "Oh, I've spent thirty years telling people what to do in moments exactly like this, but now I'm going to actually say something else. I'm going to say so." I hear what's going on. What's the real challenge here for you in all of this and, and, and seeing that? And then there's another level down, which is, um, you know, coaching isn't a, a silver bullet that cures all and changes everything. And we're certainly not saying that you need to abandon every management technique you have and just give it all over to asking seven questions. And I think one of the challenges that all of us face is, are you willing to be courageous enough to manage this person in a way that truly can can matter to them? Because when things are going well, it's relatively easy to manage people. You're like, you're awesome, you're doing great, how can I help, what support do you need, and fantastic. And when things are going poorly, or they've gone off the rails a little bit, you have to have the courage to go, right, we've got to have that conversation. I've got to point out what's broken or what isn't working or to invite you to step up to be a better version of yourself, a version that I can see and that you might not be able to see. Now, many of us have had a moment when we, when somebody has called us in a good way, you know, they said, you know what, this could be better. I, I, I have seen better in you. I see better in you right now. I want you to step up for that. And it is both confronting and often exhilarating because it's like somebody seeing something in you, somebody holding you to your truth that you may not have experienced before. So I think the other challenge that's worth putting on the table, and believe me, I, I come from empathy with this because I struggle with this myself, is are you willing to be courageous enough to have those tough conversations with people when it's not working as well as it might, rather than go, well, maybe it'll change, maybe if I just pretend it's not happening, maybe I'll just go passive-aggressive on them and they'll finally quit. <laughs> There's a thousand ways to kind of avoid it, you know, Maybe I'm just telling myself this advice, you know, step up, have the conversation, be brave for their sake and for your sake. Yeah, it's great, great advice. Another really, I mean, this book should cost, you know, a hundred times more than it cost <laughs> to grab at the bookstore at Amazon. Uh, I love this advice you call, um, particularly in getting an email from an employee or maybe a patient or a client, but with an employee particularly, I was guilty of this until I read your book. And that is someone presents a problem, a question, some challenge, and you go into what you call um, triggering the advice monster. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and instead of doing that, talk talk the listeners through because uh, it's br- brilliant advice yeah. and I love it. Well, so people are probably already getting that aha moment going, look, when somebody comes to you and goes blah, 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 you will notice that you're triggered to jump in and give advice and offer suggestions and the like, and you're trying to slow down that. But the truth is that happens in electronic communication as well, particularly when you get those long, long, long emails from people because, you know, your heart drops when they show up. You're like, oh, man. You know, normally you can process your email pretty quickly, but when the long ones come, you've got to read it, you've got to read it again, you've got to read it again, and then you finally get it or you think you get it, and then you type out something like, see my answers below, and under each paragraph you start explaining and justifying and commenting and whatever it might be. 
And what you're now doing, you're in rescuer mode, you're trying to fix it, you're in, your advice monster has been unleashed and you're going crazy here. So that might be the appropriate response. Sometimes it is. But there might be an alternative here, which is to say, hey, John, thanks for the, the great email. Wow, lots going on here. And I think one or two good questions can happen here. One is you go, so what's the real challenge here for you? This is the, the focus question, question number three from the book. Um, and what you're saying is, I'm not going to try and figure out what the challenge is amongst all of this. I need you to condense it for me. Or another question that can be useful is asking, so how can I help? Or more bluntly, so what do you want from me out of all of this? Because so often when we get those emails, what they want from us is a little unclear. We make all sorts of assumptions and we end up working really hard quite often to deliver something that they're not even looking for. Yeah. So, I've, I... <laughs> you know, obviously the first time they get this email back from you, they're like, what the hell? You've been listening to podcasts. Have you been reading books? And they're going to hope you forget this. But if you keep doing it after a couple of times, you're going to start training them to go, I don't get to write the long rambly emails anymore. I need to get to the heart of the challenge. How can you yeah. help? What's the real challenge here for me? It's just such great advice, and thank you for, for giving it. I, I mean, I used to send back, and you take their eight paragraphs and try to highlight, you know, your answers to each one of yeah, those issues. Yeah. And the reality is, is you should come back with a really powerful question from Michael's book. And so, the one I use a lot I is, mean, you know, help, not, help. Not always. Yeah. I, I really want people to hear that. I'm like, I'm really not going. You, you're, nev you're never allowed to give advice ever again. You can only ask questions. But I just want people to know that jumping in with advice and solutions has become for almost everybody their default and their overworked reaction to a situation. And what I'm looking for people to do is just, you know, do a little weightlifting, build up a little muscle around staying curious. Do you feel like you see that more with your male client? I feel like as guys, we always just want to fix problems. Do you, do you feel like that's a case or maybe not? Well, there is um, there's some research that says men tend to be a little more directive than women, but honestly, <laughs> it's you know I'm I'm I, there's I wouldn't have said there's an enormous gender gap here. Yeah, yeah, I um you know I I know particularly with um with childhood conditioning, you know we've all been taught things really bad advice like if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself, right, right. and. Uh, and, and most of us never let go of that. Through dental school and medical school, they really, luckily for patient care, they teach you to be perfectionists or they attract those individuals mm. in the first place. And it's, so it's very hard for us to um, to let go and not want to solve the problems. But um, yeah, but it, that you don't get to you, get, you don't get to grow a business or scale a business or increase your impact or increase your revenue or increase you know you don't get to do that unless you start learning how to give up control. Yeah, it's it's a core tenet of what we teach at Burleson Seminars, which is if you really think what you do helps people, then you should want to help as many people as you can. And you can't do that if you're doing everything on your own. That's right. Uh, yeah. In the book, uh, you share the seven essential questions. We've gone through a lot of those. Um, and you talk about how you can help someone coach an employee or perhaps another team member if they're a team leader, maybe a patient or client in 10 minutes or less, what would you say to someone who's skeptical about that? Yeah, well, I can understand why you're skeptical because most of the people who come to coaching 
and at this level with this audience, a lot of people are thinking about what it means to have experienced an executive coach. And the, the model for executive coaches is, you know, once every two weeks or once a month, I come in and we have an hour-long chat and we work through some stuff, and that can be extremely powerful. And it's a terrible role model for thinking about how to manage and work with your own team because if you're orthodontists or anything like the orthodontists I knew, none of them are spending a whole lot of time sitting around twiddling their thumbs going, this is excellent, I've got an hour for this upcoming conversation with my team member. They're all going, I'm really busy. (laughs) (laughs) I've got three chairs open. I'm moving from chair to chair to chair. I'm giving this person my attention. Then I've got my team coming in and doing this stuff with them when I move to the next person. You know, people don't have time. And that's one of the key barriers that people feel about adding coaching to their repertoire, their leadership repertoire, which is who has time for this stuff? And I have two responses to that. The first time when somebody goes, look, I've seen executive coaching. I don't have time for this 40-minute, 50-minute, hour-long coaching intervention. I go, you know, you're right. You don't have time. And in fact, unless you come to this with a belief that you can coach in 10 minutes or less, you're never going to think that coaching is something that you can add to your coaching repertoire. But here's the thing. You say that and people go, well, that's great. 10 minutes or less sounds intriguing. And I still don't have time for this coaching stuff because even if I had 10 minutes, you know, I needed to eat lunch or I needed to (laughs) take a walk or I needed to set up the next whatever. Um, Coaching will always feel like it's not important and urgent enough to add on to what your current obligations are. And to that, I say, no, again, you are absolutely right. If you feel like coaching is something that you need to now add on to what you're currently doing, it probably won't work. But if you think of coaching as not about additive, but as transformative, you're like, how do you keep doing what you currently do? But now, how do you stay curious a little bit longer? How do you rush to action and advice giving just a little bit more slowly? How do you do that in a way that becomes more coach-like? So you're not trying to pour more water into a full glass because that never works. What you're doing is trying to transform the color of the water or turn water into wine if you want to get kind of religious about it and change the nature of the way you interact with your team, with your patients, with whoever else. Yeah, I think it's a cultural shift for the entire organization. And this is one of the books. We keep a library for our team members. Mm -hmm. And each month we go through a book and I recommend that our clients do the same. This I I think this would be a great book uh, to put in front of your team leaders to start and then your employees so that it's just second nature, like the way we all behave. Yeah, because um, that's a great insight because uh, it's a lot easier to change your behavior if others around you are changing your behavior. It's a lot easier to say to your people on your team, here's my goal. I want to leave with more questions. So I'm looking for you when I'm working with you, managing you, having those conversations. I want you to ding me if I'm leading with advice. You know, let's let's create our own little advice monster cutouts and wave them at each other in meetings if the advice monsters have gotten loose and we need to kind of just manage that. You know, there's a way that you can commit as a team or a company or an organization to go, how do we become just a little bit more coach-like? It's not to say that advice isn't good because there's times where it's exactly the right thing. But there's also to say that with leadership, it is an overworked solution. Yeah, I go back to Daniel Pink's book and some of the concepts. I think I might miss 
the title. It's either everyone's in sales or uh, that's right. Um, it, this idea, right, that you know, power as the boss works. You know, it's it's such, from such a different era. You know, back in like manufacturing and and I'm the boss and I sign your paycheck, so you do what I say, right? That never works in the long run. The the influence is so much more powerful. And letting the team see that and feel that as a, as a part of the culture has been a huge shift for us. Now, to your point, it does force you to slow down. Yeah. Right. If you say, hey, today we're going to do X and by the end of the day, we're going to we're going to count and make sure it happened. It might happen for a while until everyone quits. <laughs> but if you want to lead through influence with the concepts in Michael's book, for example, uh, it might take it might force you to slow down a little bit and and not rush to action so quickly. Well, there's a hybrid there as well, which is here's the outcome we need, and that's part of what leadership is: is to set those goals. Rather than going, so here's how you need to do it. You go, so okay, so what's the real challenge for you in getting that done today, or this week, or this month? And now you're into an interesting conversation where you're setting the boundaries, you're setting goals, and you're saying, let me help you figure out how you're going to get there rather than me telling you. Yeah. Most of my job is translated into helping people uh, at the top define the opportunity and then everyone else having really open and kind of sometimes painful conversations about the challenges that are, we're going to face leading into those opportunities. Yes. And before I asked that, it was one or two people coming up with all the ideas, which as you could guess, were, <laughs> were not as good as the entire team. So, um, Hey, I, I love the way you think. I love your mind. I love all the books you've written. Thank what's you. new. What's on the horizon for you? What, what's getting you excited nowadays? Well, I, you know, there's a couple of things. The book, the coaching habit book has, has been a huge success for us. You know, you, when you write a book, you hope that people buy it and read it and like it. Um, but the truth is most books, uh, they kind of don't work that well. You know, most books sell less than a thousand copies. Uh, and when you think of the time and effort and blood, sweat and tears that have gone into writing most books, it's a poor return on the, that effort. But this book has gone gangbusters. Like we're closing in on half a million copies sold. So that's super exciting for us. Not least because, uh, you know, the backstory is that I spent three years pitching this book to my uh, my New York publisher and they turned it down. So in the end, I self-published it. So I'm feeling quite smug about that. Um, <laughs> so the, the two things we've got, one is uh, it, there's, a, there's a way that the book directly contributes to the business that we're in, which is bringing coach skills into organizations. So we're growing fast. And so part of me is trying to follow my own advice and be a leader and a CEO in my own growing company. Um, and then I am, I am starting to think of a, a, a couple of sequel books to the coaching habits. So um, I'm sketching out the next book launch. So it gives me uh, about 18 months to, to get my ideas in shape, get the book, starting to write it, go through the painful and miserable experience of writing a book and then get a, a new book out into the world. Yeah. It's amazing that I, I know of and have spoken to no other authors who have self-published and become wall street journal, best-selling authors is an incredible accomplishment. Well, thank you. I mean, you know what? I, I'm very proud of it. And I'm also quite, re I recognize that sometimes you just get the, the God smiling on you and the magic fairy dust being sprinkled because uh, we worked really hard to get this book out into the world. And I don't think we can take all the credit for the, the good luck we've had with it. 
It's been fantastic. I know we're getting close to the end of our time together. How can people find you or any closing thoughts? Sure. So if people are interested in our programs, boxofcrayons.com is the place to go for that. Um, if you're interested in, in me as a speaker or just me as a kind of contributor, as a thought leader, we're, we're setting up michaelbungaystania.com. It's my full name, michaelbungaystania.com. Um, at the moment, there's a couple of ebooks that people can grab and, and download from there if they want. And if you're just interested in the book, and that's great, thecoachinghabit.com. I think you can download the first, I think it's three or four chapters. So there's a ton of free resources and videos and podcasts. And, you know, so I'd invite people to jump on there and just pillage the site, grab what you want. Awesome. Michael, thank you. The book we've been reviewing for this quarter's box is The Coaching Habit. Say less, ask more, and change the way you lead forever. This is a book that should not only be on your shelf, it's a tool that should be in your life and in your practice. And Michael, we thank you for writing it and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for the great conversation. You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed today's program, please share us with a friend or colleague. Visit theburlesonbox.com where you can sign up to receive my monthly reading list and action guides for each of the books and authors we interview. As a member of the program, we invite you to send the Burleson Box to your referring doctors and centers of influence. Call us at 1-800-891-7520 to discuss how the Burleson Box has worked for many successful organizations throughout the world. And be sure to listen each month for chances to win fun prizes and practice building resources for you and your team. Until next time, remember the words of Mark Twain who said, A man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. Go, make it a great month, and I'll see you right here next time in the Burleson Box. the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement. Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving.